you can turn to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians 3, verse 12. We're continuing in this series on uh, Beyond Surviving. We've looked for the first couple of weeks at an intentional life with God. I really believe that that's where transformation starts. Transformation begins in the heart of the individual. God works with us as individuals. We are brought into his kingdom and then we grow on, we build on that most holy faith that Jude told us. And from that, it spills over into our families, into marriage and then into parenting. And then from that, it spills out into our neighborhood and our workplaces and the whole world. That's the way that God tells us that he works. And so today we're looking at marriage and we're going to be reading from Colossians chapter 3 and talking about this. And thankfully, uh, collectively, all of our marriages and really all of our relationships got uh, a lot better this week because we got a break from the heat. Uh, can I get an amen on that? Uh, wow. Collectively, we're all doing a lot better. We're a lot less angry, aren't we? Um, so that helps. I think we probably still have a few more things to learn and to grow in. But we're going to be looking at Colossians 3, and like Ephesians 5, which is another famous marriage passage, Paul here is interweaving different things. He talks about the gospel first, and, um, and how we've been brought into this kingdom, and this is the Lord Jesus Christ is our everything. And then he talks about the church as this body of believers, and then he moves into the, fam- <clears throat> the family. So this movement of the church and then then the family shows us that it's all intertwined together. Paul does the same thing in Ephesians chapter 5. He says there's a mystery, the mystery of marriage. But he's talking about all these things with marriage and he says, but that mystery refers to Christ and the church. And so everything that is appropriate for us to do and be together in the church is appropriate for us to bring into our marriages. This is what he says here. Um, to talking about how we should all act together as the church, and then it leads directly into husbands and wives, and then the rest of the family. And so this, mar- this sermon is going to be targeted at those who are married uh, or thinking about marriage, but it is also for everyone because everything that we talk about is the Christ-likeness that exists in every relationship, or at least it should, in the church. So let's read it together. Colossians 3, verses 12 through 19. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must forgive also. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. This is the word of the Lord. So there's enough newer folks and maybe some of you who are here been established for a while to know that <laughs> you don't know the full story of how Becca and I um, met and dated. And so that is quite a tale. We met actually in high school. We were long distance high school sweethearts. Uh, so for five years we dated without being in the same place. So we met at a summer camp in um, Florida and I was from Mississippi. She was from Virginia at the time. 
And so we met at that camp. We started a relationship that lasted into college. So we had gone to different colleges. We were a grade apart. And um, Becca had gone to uh, a school in Birmingham, Samford University, and I went to the University of Nebraska. And so we were, had the, continued this long-distance relationship. A couple of years into college, we decide that Becca's going to transfer up to Nebraska. There's going to be a, uh, a, you know, a time period where we're there in school, and then we're going to get engaged, and then we'll get married. That was our plan. Never been in the same place before. Uh, so what actually happened is when Becca moved to Nebraska, she moved in the dead of winter. That ought to set an icy tone um, for the rest of the story. So it's, it's Nebraska in the winter. She moves there. I had already established a friend group. I would already was part of a ministry there and everything. And she moved into that. And it was just this cold place, uh, literally and figuratively, uh, for her. And it's no surprise that within a very short period of time, we broke up. Uh, and by broke up, I mean she dumped me. Um, so that's what happened. After five years of being together, apart the moment that we come into the same orbit and we're there together, we immediately break up. Then there's separation again. For almost a year, we were uh, apart from one another and really didn't think that anything would happen here. But then slowly, we started to move closer and closer together. We started dating again. We got quickly engaged. Then we quickly got married after that. And then we had a very hard first two years of marriage. <laughs> Once again, the pattern had repeated from you know, separated to together, break up, separate together, hard, but we can't break up, right? We're married now. And so we had this couple of years of a hard marriage. And then we've been married for a decade after that. God's done amazing work in our life. And it's just amazing. We're unrecognizable from the people that we were in college and high school before that. The, the gospels brought all this transformation to our marriage. And yet what it seemed like was that closeness was the enemy, right? Whenever we would come close to one another, we would then have trouble. It's like we had to learn to live close together. Being close was the enemy. And there's something kind of wrong about that. There's something, very, there's something right about that. We all know that there is supposed to be some kind of emotional space in a marriage. So there, there is space in marriage. There's room for... for, um, for being wrong about something, for having individual personalities and these kinds of things. But whenever there's a problem because you're close and the proximity is what's causing the problem, you know you have a big problem indeed. It's not just breathing room. It's that you've gotten so close to the other person you recognize more and more of their sin. The closer we get to one another, the more we see the problems. And that becomes a problem. These smaller spaces, the closer we get creates more reactivity, and we're constantly more likely to see each other's sin and respond to it. So I say all that to say this. Well, we've never been in closer quarters than we are now. I don't mean that just for me and Becca. I mean that for all of us, right? We are in a global pandemic where literally we've been home way more than we normally are. We're not shopping so much. We're not, some of us, going to work. Uh, we're staying home. Our home life has become much more close. And with that reveals more and more problems and also opportunities for Christ-likeness. And so what we need to look at is how the gospel can be a balm to that, that we can move beyond just surviving in our marriages to actually thriving. And here's the main thing I want us to see today. 
A marriage thrives when Christ is brought into every close corner of the relationship. A marriage thrives when Christ is brought into every close corner of the relationship. I like that image of corners. Like a, that's a phrase that's not used very often. Maybe it's a southern thing. We say, that was close corners. But it's like that image of we're, we're closer together and yet we are growing in the gospel and that gospel creates space around us. We see more of Christ in every aspect. So I want us to see three things today. First, um, how we bring Christ in our attitude. Second, in our actions. And then the assignments of marriage. In each way, those things bring intentionality of gospel to our marriage. And if you're not married, you're single, or you're dating, then it's any relationship that's within the church because all of it applies. So first, we need to see the attitude of an intentional marriage. Looking at the first verse that we read, verse 12, it says this, Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. This is the attitude that Christ had, and it's the attitude that should dominate our relationships. And what he describes it as, as putting on clothing. And when you put on that clothing, it is as though you are putting on Christ. That is the image that he loves to use about our union with Christ. Let me give you a couple of other examples. Romans 13, 14 says, Instead, clothe yourself with Christ. Galatians 3, 27, For all who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. That's the image. When we are covered in this garment, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, we are clothed with Christ himself. This is the attitude that Christ had. So how would we describe it? First, he talks about this. Compassionate hearts. Now that's a huge phrase. I love the old translation of it. Because actually used to be translated tender mercies. Tender mercies. Mercy is such a big theme as we started out saying the posture of mercy is important for transformation. Well, mercy is going to be with us every step of the way. And it especially is true in your marriage. The literal translation of that is bowels of compassion. Talking about the gut. The inside. What you feel in the pit of your stomach. That should be compassion and mercy towards your spouse. How do we describe that feeling? It's that same feeling that you get when you see a child and the child is struggling or the child wants something and it can't quite reach it or the child is desiring something but it, he just needs to be broken, you know, hard news needs to be given to him or her. And you just feel in your gut like, I just want that child to have that or to succeed or to not be that, that not be the reality. That is the feeling, the gut feeling of compassion that we should bring into our marriages. Now, this is not to say that we infantilize our spouse and treat them like babies, but it means that there's something inside of us that's the same when the person is struggling, when the person is going through something, when they're saying something to you, when they're correcting you, there should be this gut of compassion and mercy towards them. Because at the end of the day, we're all children. We all are children of God, and we need this. Compassionate hearts. Kindness. What is kindness? Kindness is a readiness to do good. That means you're on the verge of providing something to, to someone. Humility. That is lowliness or a posture of servanthood. 
Not insisting on your own way, but, but looking for opportunities to build up the other person. Meekness. Meekness refers to a type of encouraging help where we, we, we are, exist for the other person in a way that helps them but is non-coercive for us. It's change without coercion. Patience. This means that we aren't short, but we take the long view of a situation. We don't try to cut the person off. Now, I like how Paul says all those things, that long list of things, and then basically says, that's, that's a lot to remember. <laughs> Am I being compassionate today? How about kind? How about meek? How about patient? And he says, basically, you can sum it all up with one word. The word is love. Verse 14, above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Love is a shorthand way of saying all of those things. As we talked about just a few weeks ago, in 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, Paul talks about how love is the most preeminent thing that we should be focused on as the people of God. And here it is true as well. What is love? Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not insist on its own way. Love hopes all things, believes all things, endures all things. All these things that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 are situational things. And we talked about how Paul could go on. What is love? In different contexts, it, it requires different things, but it's a relentless focus on the other person as your focus rather than yourself. How is it that we create this attitude in our marriages or with those who are in relationship with in the church? How do we have this compassionate gut impulse of mercy, kindness, meekness? A few things in order to apply this to us. First, it requires that we build ourselves up in Christ first. And we build ourselves up in Christ first. Your spouse is not able to love you with the love that God has for you. That's why we started with Jude. Keep yourself in the love of God. Your spouse is not able to keep you in their love forever. No one can build you up like He can. No one can reassure you that you are loved like He can. The first key in having the ability to be compassionate towards someone else is to not be so needy of their love of you. So one of the best gifts that you can give your marriage is your own personal holiness and your own sense of being loved. When you come into it established that you have built up in the love of God first, then you are able to be compassionate because you're not focused on yourself. It means also this, secondly, that we have an impulse of understanding rather than correction. One of the ways that we can test ourselves on this is that we can watch the first words that come out of our mouths whenever our spouse speaks. If they're giving us words of correction, if they're giving us words of fear, whatever it may be, watch the first words that come out. That will indicate what direction you think things should go. If the first words are, well, I wouldn't do that if you wouldn't do this. That indicates something. If you start with, that couldn't possibly be right. That indicates something. What is our impulse? Is it is it covered in this attitude of Christ? 
Or is it covered in our own defensiveness and reactivity? Third, to create this attitude of Christ in our marriages, we need to let things go. Let things go. This is a little bit more controversial. I think this is not the same thing as stuffing your feelings. So if you feel angry or upset, then just stuffing it down, putting a smile on your face and being angry under the surface. That's not what I'm saying. But it is growth in a marriage when you are able to overlook wrongdoing. When you are able to pass over those things. This means, among other things, that we should beware because when we fight with one another, there's oftentimes what's at the core of our fighting is this kind of complexity. Marriage is really not all that complex. It's hard, but the things that we fight about are actually pretty simple. Simple. We should beware of complexity when we fight. So oftentimes, we, that's what we focus on. When we fight with someone, whether in the church or in our marriage, it's like, well, they said that first, and then I said this, and then when you looked at me like that, it made me feel this, and then you start going down that road of complexity. Let me ask you something. The last time you got to the bottom of one of those things, was your marriage healed? Was it like that it, the argument was over because you figured out who started it? Rather, let things go. Move back into simplicity. Return, rather, into these things instead. Is there kindness going on? Is there humility? Is there meekness? Is there patience? Is there, above all, a compassionate heart, a gut of mercy towards the other person? Return back to those simple things rather than continuing on in complexity. Because it's actually a glory to overlook an offense. That's what Proverbs 19.11 says. Good sense makes one slow to anger. And it is his glory to overlook an offense. Or, 1 Peter 4, 8, love covers a multitude of sins. There's an idea in marriage that love, this kind of attitude of Christ, is able to cover things. And we can let things go. That is easiest, as we've said for several weeks in a row here, when you are loving towards someone. And it's easiest to love when you are slowed down enough to see what's actually going on. I randomly came across uh, an amazing YouTube video this week. <laughs> the title is, Everything Looks Better in Slow Motion. And I agree with that title. Because as I watched that with the two million other people that watched it, it was amazing. If you had asked me, do you want to watch a video where somebody gets hit in the face with a water balloon? I would probably say no. But in slow motion, that looks amazing. <laughs> it really does. I mean, you can see this, this balloon like hitting their face and they're like starting to react before it hits them. And then it like for a second covers like their entire face as it expands out. And then there's like the little slit of the first hole in the balloon and then the water comes out and their face is all like, ah, you know. And it's just in slow motion, it's so cinematic, right? Like in, in real life, that would be over in just a second. And then you wouldn't, you wouldn't even experience anything. But as you slow it down, it looks amazing. There's this other one where there's like these bowling balls on, on cords hanging from the sky, and there's like three on each side, and they're coming together to hit each other, but in between there's a Diet Coke. And so the two bowling balls hit this Diet Coke and explode it. It's amazing. Everything looks better in slow motion. It's true. Why? Because everything, when you slow down and see it, is amazing. Everything, when you look closely, is amazing. That's why if you look at a mag under a magnifying glass and you see a leaf, it looks amazing, even though it's just a leaf. 
Because when you look closely and you look slowly, everything is amazing. Well, your spouse looks better in slow motion. (laughs) When you can see them, when there's enough space and slowing down enough to see it's not just reaction. It's not just a water balloon to the face. You know, it's, it's actually, I can see the details. This is why you care about this. This is why you're afraid of this. This is part of your past. And when I understand that, I can see how amazing you actually are. Because most of us, I dare say all of us who are growing in Christ, are doing our best, are we not? To trying to love people and trying to, to speak into situations in a way that's helpful. And it doesn't mean that we always are or that we always are doing the right thing. But when we slow down, we see the person and what they're trying to do. And we see more of their compassion, their kindness, and their humility. At the, at the least, we then have this space to have compassion. At the end of the day, if there's a difference between us, we can at least see that that person is someone who cares and that we, if we don't understand, we want to. That would be the compassion. So we have the attitude of marriage, of an intentional marriage. Secondly, we have the actions of intentional marriage. It's not just the attitude that sustains a marriage. It is intentional action over time, over and over again. Repeated things. Marriage requires words and deeds of love, just as it says in verse 17, whatever you do in word or deed. There are words and deeds that accompany marriage that are important for us. What kind of things? First, Christ-like forgiveness. Christ-like forgiveness. Verse 13 says this, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must forgive. This is true in the church. This is especially true in our marriages. It means that we don't hold things against someone. We don't hold their sins against them. It does not mean that there isn't some level of repair that needs to happen, that there isn't some level of trust that needs to be rebuilt. Emotions of love may take time to return, but forgiveness is necessary. Just as you have been forgiven in Christ, you forgive others. This is so important for marriage. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this, In a word, live together in the forgiveness of your sins. For without it, no human fellowship, least of all marriage, can survive. Don't insist on your rights. Don't blame each other. Don't judge or condemn each other. Don't find fault with each other, but accept each other as you are and forgive each other every day from the bottom of your hearts. This is what happens in marriage when we forgive one another. It it involves this accepting each other as we are that's the hardest part to accept the spouse as someone that not is a future version of them or a possibility of what they might be like but who they are right now not just forgiveness secondly it also involves christ-like peace verse 15 says this let the peace of christ rule in your hearts to which you were called in one body and be thankful I love that it's described this way. Peace should rule in the body of Christ. And peace should rule in the home. I am of the opinion that fighting destroys marriages. You can find other Christian people who say differently. They say things like this. You should get it all out. You should 
throw it all out there and then see, um, and then it's all out there and then you can kind of come back in forgiveness and pick up the pieces for the sake of honesty and for the sake of directness. I think that's wrong. I think fighting destroys marriages. And I think it's a glory to overlook offenses and we need to let the peace of Christ rule in our marriages and in all of our relationships. It doesn't mean that we're not honest and authentic, but directness is not such a value that it overcomes this peace. Peace should be the thing that we prize above all else. It should rule. Because sometimes the words that we say can stick with us for a lifetime. And there really is no repair from those things. Words are these powerful things and often said in the heat of the moment that are not meant, but they can still create damage for years and years to come. Rather, let's prioritize peace over that. One of the best ways to do that is to be thankful. Gratitude, as he says here, be thankful. It it creates that peace, doesn't it? When we are constantly saying, I'm so grateful for this person, we're not looking at their flaws all the time so that it creates fights. We're looking at what they're bringing so it creates peace. Christ-like forgiveness, Christ-like peace, Christ-like words should be a part of our marriage. Verse 16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. This sustains a marriage as having the word of Christ, whether in all the things that we do in here, we read God's word, we sing together, and those things are just kept here, and they're never spoken about at home, then it creates this division because this has only become part of our life. But Christ needs to come to every corner of our lives. So the words that we speak, the time that we have as a family and in our marriage should be covered with the word of Christ. When you bring Christ into these different areas, it reinforces your marriage no matter what else is going on externally and things do go on externally. You change. Lewis Smead's wrote a famous, uh, now famous article in Christianity Today, I think in the 80s or the 90s, and it's called The Power of Promise. And in it he talks about, hey, we think that these other things in life are the most important, or in our marriage are the most important, to have passion for what we do, to have passion for our spouse, um, these kinds of things. So he says, actually, the most important thing is promise. He says, my wife has been married to five different men, and each one of those men is me. That is so true. We change. I told you before, we, my, Becca and I are unrecognizable from our, our first years of marriage. Unrecognizable, certainly, from meeting in high school. We have different values now. We have moved to different places. We have different career. We, a lot of things have changed. Children change as the picture. Lots of things change. The promise doesn't. And the promise that we love each other means that we pursue these actions of love, that we pursue peace, that we pursue the word of Christ, that we pursue forgiveness constantly. So we have the attitudes of an intentional marriage, the action of an intentional marriage. Finally, the assignments of an intentional marriage. Let's read verse 18 and 19 again. Triggering words, certainly in our culture. Let's talk about them. Verse 18, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Now that strikes us 
it just triggers us in so many ways to even read these words. But the truth is, and just about every single passage of marriage in the New Testament, roles in marriage are talked about. This is very important to our understanding, and we need to understand it the right way. So we need to see several things about this, and especially because it is so triggering in our culture to explain some things from the original context. First, verse 18 and 19 have, have triggered the church for every generation of Christianity. However, the things that have upset people have changed. If you read this in the first century context when it was written, there would be no discussion about how wives should submit to their husbands. All of the focus would be on what in the world is verse 19 about. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, he says in Ephesians 5. Do not be harsh with them. There would be a sense of how dare you say this to husbands. How dare you? That they have a responsibility to love their wives? No, we provide for our wives, but they have to you know, this, this, this was the culture. In our culture, of course, verse 18 is much more triggering to us. Wives, submit to your husbands. The point is this. In every single culture, the things that, that, that um, challenge us about the scriptures that maybe we find ourselves disagreeing about, in every single culture, there's always been things about the gospel that affirm our culture and always been things that scandalize our culture. Always. In every single thing. The things change but the gospel remains the same. Second, though, we need to see this and understand what exactly it means. Because this word submission here does not mean obedience. In fact, in our culture, the word submission seems like it's worse than obedience, doesn't it? When we say submit, we, talk, we think about wrestlers. <laughs> and it's like pinning someone to the floor and say, Submit! That's what we think of. And so it seems almost like worse than obedience. But actually, in the original words here, this is a milder form than obedience. And he doesn't use the word obedience for husbands and wives. He uses the word submit. He could have used obedience. He uses obedience in the next verse. The next verse, though it's not printed in your bulletin, says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Obey your parents in everything. This is not the same relationship that exists between husband and wife. Submission is not the same thing as obedience. The, the relationship of the husband and the wife should be different than the relationship of parents to children. It is not the same. Even though they both involve authority, it's a different kind of authority. Third, and perhaps most importantly for understanding this context, we need to see this. These commands do not talk about what is exclusive, but what is primary. They don't talk about what is exclusive but what is primary? What do I mean by that? Can we apply to husbands and wives the opposite command here? Of course we can. Are, are wives supposed to love their husbands with a Christ-like love? Yes, of course. These commands are all going out to all the church. So, wives should love husbands. Is the opposite true? Do husbands submit to wives? Yes. Ephesians 5.21, which is a parallel passage to this where Paul talks about gender roles in marriage. He says, just before he says, wives, submit to your husbands, the previous verse says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. It's a command to the church, and it's a command in the home. We submit to one another, and we love one another. Both are true. Both are not exclusive, 
And yet, why does he talk about this as a primary thing? If that is true, why does he then put the gender difference in here? I don't know that I fully know the reason for that, but I know at least this. In a unique way in marriage, we have an opportunity to reverse the curse that was given in Genesis chapter 3. The curse that brought that man and woman brought on themselves and the whole human race. And this was part of the curse. Genesis 3.16 talks about marriage in particular, and it says this to Eve, your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now that's kind of hard to understand what that means, but they're both negative things. Your desire will be to dominate your husband, and then the husband will respond. This is just generally true, not exclusively true. The husband often responds with lordship and tyranny. And so you have this constant fight for the top. Submission and love uniquely reverses that. There are two sides of a beautiful gospel coin, and they both are things that are found in Christ himself. It's not that the husband plays the role of Christ and the wife does not. They're both doing what Christ did in different ways. What did Christ do? Christ loved the church. He gave himself up for her. How did he do that? In submission to the Father. And so if submission becomes an ugly word or an ugly concept to you, you're saying that what Christ did is an ugly thing. He submitted to the Father, though he was equal in power and glory to the Father. Equal. Before the foundation of the world, he submitted to the Father. And then accomplished redemption with love. Not by being harsh, but by laying down his life, as husbands are supposed to do for their wives. The whole thing, this whole time that we've been talking about, everything has to do with Christ. The attitudes of marriage. Compassion, meekness, patience. Those are the words that describe Christ. The actions, forgiveness. Forgiveness is accomplished in Jesus. Peace, peace is established because of Christ. He brought peace. The Word, He is the Word of Christ. He is the Word of God. And then here, submission and love. Both things that He did for us and that we now have an opportunity to imitate And so everything comes back to Christ. Every corner of the relationship, when it's covered with what He has done, improves our relationship. This is so vital for us, and I think even more so now because of how close we are to one another and how tempted we are to neglect some of our chief relationships in the family with our spouses in particular. The urgency of this was brought home to me this week, and I'll close with this. Um, last week, Becca and I, we lost a, a really good friend of ours. She died. This is someone that I grew up with. Spent 10 years uh, going through middle school and, and um, elementary school with. Her dad was my fifth grade teacher. She still lived in my hometown in Mississippi. She was my age. She died this week in a motorcycle accident with her boyfriend. And the reason why I bring that up is because she's the one who introduced Becca and I. So, going back to that summer camp in Florida, she's the one who made our introduction. She met Becca first, and then through a group of friends we came together, and then Becca and I met, and then the rest is history for us. And just thinking about her, and, then, and grieving that loss, and then reading this this week, and thinking about marriage 
you just realize how fragile things are and how urgent it is for us to bring Christ-likeness into our relationships. And it made me think about Ephesians 5. Earlier in the chapter, that's a chapter on marriage, but earlier, before he talks about marriage, he says this. Look carefully then how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise. Making the best use of the time because the days are evil. I believe it's self-evident that the days are evil. Are they exclusively evil? No. God is doing His work in the world. He's building His church all over the world. It's not exclusively evil, but the days are evil. We're in a time when there's a pandemic that we didn't expect. We're in a time when people can die on motorcycle accidents or any other number of things. Fill in the blank. The days are evil. And there's just this command to us in Ephesians 5. The days are evil, so make the best use of your time. Now is the time for us to cover all of our relationships, especially our marriages, in love and grace and Christ-likeness. To bring Christ into the way that we speak to one another. To bring Christ into the way that we forgive and love one another and maintain the peace. To bring Christ into the way that we submit and love one another. Now is the time. The days are evil. And the time is short. So I would encourage us to bring Christ into this relationship after we have built ourselves up in the love of God, after we have committed ourselves to discipline, to let this spill over into our most important relationships and marriage and family, bring Christ there. Let's pray.